Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. It's not a kindness and compassion out of duty, for example, but just because you recognize you're all part of kind of one brotherhood or sisterhood and just seems very kind of noble ideal um, uh, and that we are you know we we're not just solitary individuals but we do kind of live a common existence and we depend upon each other and it seemed just a, like a beautiful articulation of that um, and you know and it kind of so it has echoes in other ways you know it has echoes for example in the meta that we spoke about earlier and so lots of words kind of articulating this beautiful ideal of interconnectedness and solidarity um, so yeah, that's a, that's a one of that's a beautiful word, and I think I just found it very powerful and something to reflect on, you know, because um, you know there is this, there can be the sense, for example, that Western countries can be somewhat or you know relatively individualistic and atomistic, um, and this idea that we can learn to uh, appreciate uh, connectedness and solidarity a little more, and I find that words like this kind of, at least for me, they help me to have great appreciation for that aspect of it. What is a lexical gap and why do some words and feelings get lost in translation? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack those questions with British psychologist, writer and teacher, Dr Tim Lomas, whose new book, The Happiness Dictionary, Words from Around the World to Help Us Live a Richer Life, has just been published by Piacus, where Tim argues... Our limited vocabulary means many wonderful experiences can elude our grasp. Tim goes on to state, different languages impose subtle different boundaries upon the world. This fact has profound and exciting consequences. So how many words are there to define the feeling of happiness? And are most of them untranslatable? So hi, my name's Tim Lomas. I'm a lecturer and researcher in positive psychology at the University of East London. Um, and I've just brought out a book called The Happiness Dictionary with uh, Piakas, and it's uh, an examination of untranslatable words relating to well-being with the result of trying to make a um, conceptual map of experiences relating to well-being. Really well done on the book, Tim. I have to say it's a very expansive read and um, it's quite the journey through words. I found it uh, incredibly interesting. I might Thanks throw you a big wide open question to kick things off and we sure we can okay. take it from there. Do you think the um, English language adequately describes human experience and the depths uh, and ranges of experience that we go through? Do you think it fully encompasses all of those experiences? Well, I suppose I'd give two answers to that. First of all, does any language adequately capture experience? And I think the answer to that is maybe no. I think so many experiences, they're ineffable. You can't render them in words. And when you do, it's kind of imperfect. And, you know, if I was to describe to you the taste of coffee, you know, and you didn't drunk coffee before, I couldn't do it justice in words. And it only makes sense if you've drunk coffee yourself. So I think, like any experience, you can't really perfectly do it justice in words. So I think I think any language is going to be imperfect. And then like the second answer I give is whether English is only say worse off than other languages. And I'm not sure that's the case. I think, you know, all languages are very rich. English is as rich as any. Um 
It has a kind of very large lexicon for describing experiences, but it just has a different set of words for other languages, which is what creates this phenomenon of uh, untranslatable words. You know, because I use that to describe, well, me and other linguists use that for instances of when there's a word in another language that we don't have an exact equivalent for uh, in English. So two languages might have as many words as each other, but they just have slightly different words for different things. So you can pinpoint different things, which make these uh, this phenomenon of untranslatable words. It's possibly very difficult um, considering what you've attempted to do in the book in terms of the happiness dictionary and compiling a list of words. But there is something beautiful about the fact that some words are untranslatable, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's so fascinating. I've just been, as you'd imagine with the book, just diving into the phenomenon and what it means. And um, I could go on about it all day, about just the significance of the fact that there are these words and then how interesting it is that we can learn from each other in kind of enriching our vocabularies by uh, exploring these words. Um, really says something fascinating about um, how we approach and understand life and the variations that we can have uh, in that respect. So tell me, Tim, what does the word happiness mean to you on a personal level? How does that kind of, what does that translate to in your own experience of life? Oh, that's such a tricky question. I mean, partly that's why we wanted to write the book to explore that because happiness is a very personal thing, but it not only does it mean different things to, to different people, but it means you know, different things to me. I use the word in relation to so many things, you know, if I find my soulmate and she's deeply in love and I say that makes me happy and it's, you know, that's a profound kind of happiness and then, you know, having an ice cream outside in the sunshine, that makes me happy too, but, you know, it's a different kind of happiness. Um, spiritual experience is another form of happiness. So I think it's just to recognize the fact that this word happiness covers such a vast wave of experiential territory, as it were. It just covers such a range of um, feelings and experiences. So I was keen to, you know, look within, within that and see what different types of happiness there are. And then, you know, to an extent that, that, that mirrors some of the work that goes on within positive psychology that's trying to tease apart um, different forms of happiness. So, for example, they have a uh, differentiate between hedonic happiness, which is about, you know, pleasure and life satisfaction, and then contrasting that with eudaimonic happiness, and eudaimonia is an interesting word because that in itself is an, an untranslatable word that's been embraced by positive psychology and that comes from classical Greece and then the term eudaimonia, well, in its original conception it meant to kind of have a good or benevolent kind of spirit on your side or within you or infusing you um, uh, and it was associated with like the work of Aristotle about the importance of living virtuously and kind of pursuing excellence um, and living a meaningful life and those kind of qualities have been acknowledged by people within positive psychology to describe this form of eudaimonic happiness, which is about having depth and meaning in life and finding purpose and those sorts of qualities. So that that's already one differentiation between this kind of hedonic happiness and eudaimonic happiness. And then, for example, there's another researcher called Paul Wong, and he has this idea of chironic happiness, which rates the term kairos, which is about sort of blessedness, and this is more of a spiritual form of happiness. So, um, you know, within the field, we can see attempts to differentiate different forms of happiness. And, you know, that mirrors the different forms I can find in my own life. You know, there's more just pleasurable hedonic forms and they're valuable and have their place. But then there's those deeper, more profound forms of happiness that, you know, really make life, uh, you know, 
really stay in the memory and are highlights of one's life, I think. You write in your introductions, Tim, that language is a map that allows us to understand and navigate a path through our experimental world. And I thought that was very interesting. And it got me thinking that possibly, you know, it could be argued that the words that we use in our language shapes actually how we understand our experiences and how we think. I think that's true, yeah, because I've used that metaphor and I'm not the one to think of that. That's been a kind of prominent metaphor throughout the centuries, Um but this idea that language being like a, a map help us navigate and, uh, and understand our experiences. And then, given that metaphor, it also helps us to understand cultural differences. Um, so here it touches upon theoretical work in linguistics, um, known as the linguistic relativity hypothesis, or sometimes more popularly known as the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, which uh, made its appearance in that film Arrival recently, you saw that. Um, but this is this idea that, um, well, essentially, people across the world maybe share a kind of common experiential territory, but languages map this territory in different ways. For example, they, they carve up the world in slightly different ways. Because if you think about a geographical map, like a regular map, um, it imposes order on the complexity of the world by uh, delineating boundaries and circumscribing regions. So we'll, you know, We'll draw a boundary and then here's a country and here's a region with a country and so on. Um, and language does something similar. It kind of carves up the complexity of the world by imposing boundaries upon it. And you place a boundary around the region of experience and then give that boundary a name and a label. And there we have a word for an experience. So to give an example, we'll say within our you know, inner world, there's a whole wealth of different feelings that range on different indices like intensity and valence and duration and significance and so on but we might draw a boundary around a, a small area of you know positive intensity and energy then call that bliss for example and then uh, draw a boundary around a slightly you know a nearby region and then call that joy and um, we can see how we impose these boundaries on our experience and give labels to it and that's how we carve up the complexity of the world and make it manageable but then this idea that different languages impose subtly different boundaries on this experience. And that uh, that influences how people uh, experience and understand and represent their experience and life generally. Um, so this is the premise of the, the uh, linguistic relativity hypothesis, that language will impose, a, you know, will, will vary in the maps we have to make sense of our experiences, and that will subtly influence how people do then uh, experience and understand their lives. Tim, you've spent uh, quite a significant amount of time uh, living and working in Buddhist countries. I'm just wondering, how, is, how, is, how have those experiences um, impacted on your understanding of positive psychology? And do you think, um, you know, Western psychology has, to, has, has a lot to learn from Buddhism? Well, yeah, I mean, because I'm, you know, I've been looking back and thinking, how did I get into this line of work and this piece of research and kind of tracing the origins back. And I think a lot of it started when... Um, I lived in China for six months when I was uh, 19. So I went there to teach English before starting university. And, um, you know, the whole trip was just mind-blowing anyway in so many ways and just encountering so many new places and sites and peoples and uh, also new ideas, you know. So I traveled around and I'd spent time in uh, Buddhist and Taoist monasteries. And, you know, while you're there, you're encountering uh, words that, you know, now I would call these untranslatable words like the Tao or uh, Sanskrit, like Buddhist words like Nirvana. Um, I know that's not Chinese, but, you know, you encounter it in the context of being in a Buddhist monastery. Um, 
And then these words, we realized, I realized that we didn't have an equivalent in English. And then that's really, you know, intriguing. And then even when I asked people to explain what they meant then, or even when I try and read out what they meant, I still wouldn't be able to grasp it. And I thought something significant going on here because I would see these words and they would seem, even without my fully understanding what they meant, I could appreciate their significance and profundity. They seem to have a lot to say about, you know, real importance to, to life and how we could live our lives, um, even though I didn't you know, really understand or appreciate what they meant. So while I was there, I had this sense of the notion of there being concepts or ideas in other cultures and other languages that we didn't have in English, but that would nevertheless be very important to people, you know, everywhere potentially. Um, and then, you know, I came back to, to Britain and I studied psychology up in Edinburgh. And then, you know, it was, it was lovely. I really enjoyed the course and it was fascinating. But at the same time, um, you know, coming to realize that it was very Western-centric and English-centric. Obviously, everything was in the English language and uh, some of the ideas I'd encountered in China like, for example, relating to Buddhism, uh, just weren't really featured in the course at all, um, with the possible exception of some things relating to meditation, which I found super interesting, and um, that's what I was drawn to. So I always had a sense that psychology, as I was studying it myself, you know, in Scotland, in the West, would have much to learn from other cultures and um, their approaches the mind and their systems and theories they developed in relation to the mind so buddhism but also other you know not just buddhism other traditions other cultures other schools of thought um so i always had this sense that psychology as i was studying it could be expanded could learn from these other cultures and i i think that's something i wanted to be a part of um so you know in, in that sense i was drawn to you know do my phd looking at meditation and buddhism um so I was kind of following up that path, I think. Um, but yeah, always this sense that, you know, psychology was quite, psychology as I was studying it was somewhat culturally specific and centered around the English language and that it's missing out on many things because of that and that there was this potential to expand the boundaries by engaging more with other languages and other cultures. Tim, you bring up um, the concept of emotional granularity, how some people have an innate ability to experience and conceptualise subtle different emotions. And I thought that was very interesting, but I presume that is something we can work on, is it? Oh, for sure, yeah. It's um, this idea of emotional granularity. It's also sometimes referred to as emotional differentiation. So the, this ability to differentiate in a granular way, granular way between different emotions and experiences. So here I've been influenced by the work of psychologists like uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett and Todd Kasten in the States, and they've done great work on this idea of granularity or differentiation. But yeah, the important thing to think of is it's not some trait-like ability that people have or they don't have. It's just a, it's a spectrum or a scale on, on which you know everyone sits somewhere, but we just all vary. So people might vary in their level of granularity or differentiation. So it's not that someone either has it or doesn't have it, but people just vary to some extent. You know, like a, you know, like, like any ability or skill, whether that's you know intelligence or you know traditional IQ or emotional intelligence. Um, so people vary on this uh, spectrum, as it were. But then also another thing I've got from their work that I find very important is that it's not a static skill or, or capacity. So it's something that people can work on and train. And in fact, some of their work has been around like developing educational programs and interventions for school children to help them develop their granularity and then this idea that the extent to which they can do that that helps their well-being you know 
by you know, enhancing their emotional awareness and intelligence, and they're better able to children are better able to recognise what they're feeling and then to work with their feelings. Um, so this idea that granularity and differentiation are their capacities that you could train or work on. Um, and to some extent, I think like, the book I've been doing and the work I've been doing fits in with that idea. This idea that by you know studying these concepts from other languages and these ideas, I, I personally think, you know, and this is, I haven't tested this empirically, it's just my intuition, my, my hunch that by engaging with these words, it can help us enhance our granularity and, and differentiation. And we can, you know, know what we're feeling with more specificity and understanding and that it helps us in terms of just trying to manage it and discuss it and remember it and articulate it and all those kinds of things. So what do words like meta or karma or nirvana mean to you? They're words that are thrown out a lot. But I'm just wondering, what do they mean to you as a positive psychologist, given your background in Buddhism? Well, this is such an interesting question because part of what I've been wrestling with the book, uh, within the book is this notion that as much as I'm trying to help bring awareness to these words and help people, I think, you know, engage with them and learn from them, it's also very difficult to understand fully what they mean. And, you know, to an extent, I think only people within the culture that created the word can really fully understand what these words mean and all their, you know, layers and nuances and, and levels of meaning, you know, because, you know, any word within any language is structurally, it's connected to so many other terms uh, and so many kind of values and traditions and norms and ideas transplant that word and try and fully understand it within the context of another language is almost an impossibility, I think. So I'm personally aware that, say, for example, these words like karma and uh, metta and nirvana, these Buddhist terms, to someone uh, brought up and raised within the culture that's created these words, they would bring a whole load, a whole kind of network of meanings and resonances. Um, these words would have a whole series of resonances and meanings that I just won't have access to. Um, so I'm aware that any kind of reading of them I have or any view of them I have is going to be just very partial and um, somewhat shallow. But, you know, you have to try your best, and I've been engaging with them um, in the context of my work. But also personally, you know, like you mentioned, I've um, since being in China, I've tried to follow Buddhist path, and I've got a Buddhist study group near where I live, and we talk about these words and what they might mean and how they might apply to our lives. So um, something like, Meta, that's a, um, you know, that's a powerful word. So at the very kind of, at its most elemental, it's often kind of described as a form of loving kindness um, or kind of kind curiosity. And I think that's a powerful uh, emotion and something you try and work on. You know, for example, within the Buddhist tradition that I kind of affiliate with, there's meditations to help people try and cultivate this uh, called the Metta Bhavna or it's Sometimes it's kind of known in English as like loving kindness meditation, um, and I think that's a really powerful example of the way people can take a word like meta, but then there's it's not just this abstract concept, but there's practices to help people work on this and cultivate this. And you know, I've tried some of these myself, and they're not always easy, but I find they can be quite kind of powerful and um, sometimes transformative. So that's a you know a profound emotion that I think is important. And I mean, it's not that we don't have similar concepts in English. Obviously, we have love and we have kindness, so we can call it loving kindness and we kind of roughly know what it means. But even so, it's a kind of distinct emotion, I think, that's not captured by any one English word. And uh, that's the value of, for example, kind of just using the word meta. So, for example, with my 
PhD, I studied um, you know, male meditators in London who were meditating, engaging with Buddhism, and then they would talk a lot about the importance of metta and meditations to cultivate it, but they wouldn't translate the word. They would just, or try and explain it in English, they would just leave it untranslated and use the word metta, which would seem to be quite um, powerful. And, you know, similarly with karma, which, like you say, that's kind of filtered into the culture more genuinely. Um, and that's just another really interesting concept as far as I can understand it. You know, it's roughly a, I suppose, a you know, theory of causality with respect to ethics. Um, and so I think that's that central idea is something most people can grasp. And like I say, people not within the culture that created the word maybe not wouldn't appreciate its full uh, you know, range of connections with other concepts within, for example, Buddhist teachings. Um, but nevertheless, it's kind of a concept, an idea that can travel to other countries. And I think that's why it's been embraced, say, within you know, English-speaking countries as, you know, it's a word and it's a concept that seems to make sense and people can use it in that way. You know, we can acknowledge that we act in certain ways and it will have consequences and we act in other ways and that will have consequences. And so I think a word like karma just completely encompasses that, which is why, like you say, it's kind of been readily embraced by English speakers. Well, do you think a concept like nirvana, which you um, state as total liberation from suffering, do you think that's, um, you know, that can be realised in in a lifetime? Do you think that's possible? Well, again, this is another one where it's really tricky to um, kind of preserve meanings by taking concepts from one culture to another. So the word, you know, nirvana within a Buddhist context, it does refer to a sort of total cessation of suffering, but it also um, makes sense within this, I guess, metaphysical view where there's a cycle of birth, death, and pervaded by suffering, and this idea that one can exit from this um, cyclical existence. Um, so that's one prism through which to understand that word, kind of the, prism, the uh, framework within which it was originally conceived. And I think when, for example, you see Nirvana get used by English speakers, I, mean, I saw it like in an advert the other week, and it doesn't really have any connection to the the original Buddhist framework within which it was conceived and said, you know, it gets used just as a signifier for some intense happiness, which is a kind of rather different meaning. So words can take on these, um, take on different meanings as they move from uh, one culture to another. But in terms of, you know, this kind of ideal of a total liberation from suffering, from what I've read and studied of Buddhism, it's an ideal, but it's an ideal which some people, uh, the Buddha and others, are supposed to have attained, um, and having kind of faith in Buddhism and the Buddhist path, as I do, I do, I do believe that's a possibility, however um, kind of intangible and remote, and then whatever also it means, it's, it's one of those things that can seem, as I sit here, I can't really conceive of what that means. You know, if I think of feeling very happy, and then is there a way to just make that, um, you know, take that to its, dream and make it everlasting and I don't even know what that would mean so it's it's one of those ideas I find very hard to grasp but it kind of signifies uh, I guess a limit possibility that one could aim for so in a sense yes I do I suppose I do have faith that that's possible but I don't really know what it means if you know what I mean Tim you bring up uh, various interesting Taoist words including Wu Wei which is an absolute um, wonderful aspiration in life in terms of natural spontaneous um, effortless action it's just such a beautiful idea concept and aspiration to work towards I'm just wondering how do you understand Taoism how, what does it all mean to you um, apart from the whole language of Taoism 
Oh, that's a good question. I mean, and a tricky one to answer again. I mean, I, I don't feel like I'm a, an expert in Taoism, neither am I an expert in Buddhism. So I'm, I'm just writing from the position of finding these words, trying to understand what they mean, and trying to translate them into, you know, terms that I find understandable and other people might too. Um, but from what I have read of Taoism and this idea of Wu Wei, this idea of the Tao being, well, <laughs> ineffable for a start, but if you are to try and put it into words, it's perhaps just the process of becoming and the whole process of being and becoming as kind of, as an, you know, the universe, the whole, as it were. And this idea of Wu Wei is that one can try and be attuned with the patterns and currents of life, I suppose one would say, um, and try to work with them rather than against them. And so you find a lot of metaphors in Taoism about kind of going with the grain of things. Um, so, for example, you know, like a sailor might, might harness the wind skillfully with their sails rather than fighting against the wind, for example, or, or uh, a woodcarver would work with the grain of the wood rather than chopping through it you know, hacking, hacking through the wood in an artless way. So there's this idea that life to an extent is governed by certain dynamic patterns and people can learn to read these skillfully and be attuned with them. Um, and this idea of Wu Wei kind of embodies that ideal, I think. So kind of it literally translates to something like non-doing or non-action. But I think what that means is more like non-forcing. So you're just acting in a kind of natural, almost effortless, spontaneous way that's in tune with these patterns and these currents. Um, so, uh, you know, like, like there's examples that I gave of uh, kind of a sailor working skillfully with the wind, um, just harnessing it that way, or or a carver going with the grain of the wood. So it's just almost this idea that we act without contrivance or without forcing things against their nature. Um, so that's as far as I can understand it, and in as much as I understand it like that, it kind of it's a powerful idea to me and it's not something I always manage, but I think it's almost like on the best days I do, on my best days I find myself um, in sync, I suppose, with the the patterns of the my environment around me. Um whereas on other days I'm kinda of more fighting against them. So it's something you can try and work with rather than against. You also bring up the work of the psychologist John Lee and um, you go into quite a lot of detail on his six different styles of love and you kind of tease all of those out. And you write, love and being loved may be the single most important factor in our happiness. It's something that is in one way so simple, but in another way so difficult. And it's staring at us in the face, and um, but it requires work and commitment. So um, can you talk me through that? Well, yeah, so this idea of the importance of love, I mean, that's just reflected in a whole swathe of research that looks at the importance of social relationships. So this kind of research that would try and identify the factors that influence well-being, and it turns out across many different surveys that social relationships generally and particularly intimate close relationships are at or near the top of most of these. You know, So they really matter to people. And this idea that you know, love is important to all of us and maybe... It's one of the most important things we have and can strive for. Um, but then also this idea of love, it's, it covers so many types of feelings and experiences. It's like happiness. It's just one of those words that we use for so many things. You know, and I love I love my wife profoundly, and I love my dog, and I love my family and my friends, and all these are slightly different forms of love and different um, types of relationships. So um, this idea that, well, linguists just describe love as being polysemous, in the extreme. So polysemous means it has something has many meanings. Um, 
and most words are polysemous, but decided that love particularly has so many different meanings and covers such a lot of experiential ground. So I was interested to delve into that and try and yeah get a, get a more granular appreciation of different forms of love. And so there I was drawing in this work of uh, John Lee back in the 70s and 80s. And he did something similar in a way because he, he identified six different like styles of love, he called it. Um, and each one are mainly Greek but also Latin um, to identify different forms. So we had, for example, eros for romantic, passionate desire and storge for familial, caring, protective love. And then he had like a Latin term, ludus for kind of gameful, playful forms of affection. Um, so I wanted to try something similar and then, um, you know, using the words I'd found in the, in the lexicography and um, came up with a more expanded list of like 14 different kind of kinds of love. Uh, I called them flavors of love just to avoid implying that any one relationship could just be capable of being one form or another. It's more, I would think, that kind of any any bond, any relationship might be, could be a mix of a number of flavors, as it were. Um, but either way, this a list of kind of 14 different flavors, and even that I don't think is exhaustive or, or final. I think there's probably other forms could be identified. Because, um, uh, I mean, one thing I would say generally about my project, it's very much a work in progress. Um, so I'm very conscious of the fact that, you know, I've been assembling this list of untranslatable words from which I've kind of derived this book. But it's, uh, you know, it's really only just the beginning of what the list could become. So just to kind of step out of talking about love for a second, but um, project on which the, the book is based, I've been collecting these untranslatable words with the help of the public, people have been writing in, I can set up a website and people have been suggesting words to me. Uh, and the list is now a thousand, has nearly a thousand words on it. But that doesn't sound, doesn't seem very many to me because there's only around a hundred languages represented on the list so far and there's maybe some 7,000 languages in existence, you know, in the world. So I'm very aware that my list, the list is kind of very incomplete and um, there's probably many more words could be identified generally, but then also relating to love. So I think even with my um, the kind of current analysis I have of love, there's probably other forms I could identify and hopefully we'll go on to identify. But even as it is, this differentiated to these 14 different flavors has been very interesting. So, um, yeah, I've had these 14 types and then I've also kind of aggregated them into kind of more broader categories. So um, various forms of like, non-personal love. So just love for places, you know, the, the love we feel for our homeland or, you know, places we cherish and love for objects that are precious to us, um, love for certain experiences, love for what we do. And so that's a kind of certain uh, class of forms of love and then uh, various forms of caring love. So the love we have for family members and then for friends and then also that weird form like self-love, you know, it's encompassing self-compassion, self-esteem, and so on, and then a number of types of or flavors of romantic love. So the obvious ones of like, you know, desire and passion, but then also this other form, for example, identified by John Lee called pragma, which is more that kind of companionate, negotiate, negotiated love. So the kind of love that someone's been together for years and years, and even if the passion might not be there as it was, they've still kind of built up this strong relationship together. So that's an important form of loving too.
You describe the Zulu word Ubuntu, kindness arising from common humanity, or I am yeah. because you are. I thought yeah. that was extraordinarily beautiful. And there are so many wonderful um, ideas and I suppose philosophies running through Zulu philosophy, if you will. Um, can you talk me through Ubuntu? Well, yeah, I encountered that um, example. You know, there was a beautiful quote by Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And then, I, you know, reading I've done around the world, the word kind of described it as kind of embodying this kind of African humanist philosophy and um, just reflecting this, as far as I understand it, this sense of the kind of, uh, well, kindness and compassion, but also arising from, the, yes, from this sense of common humanity. So um, it's not a kindness and compassion out of duty, for example, but just because you recognize you're all part of kind of one brotherhood or sisterhood and it just seems very kind of noble ideal. Um, uh, and that we are, you know, we, we're we not just solitary individuals, but we do kind of live a common existence and we depend upon each other. And it seemed just a, like a beautiful articulation of that. Um, and, you know, and it kind of, so it has echoes in other ways. You know, it has echoes, for example, in the meta that we spoke about earlier. And so lots of words kind of articulating this beautiful ideal of interconnectedness and solidarity. Um, so, yeah, that's a, that's a one of, that's a beautiful word. And I think, and, um, I just found it very powerful and something to reflect on, you know, because, um, you know, there is this, there can be the sense, for example, that Western countries can be somewhat or, you know, relatively individualistic and atomistic. Um, and this idea that we can learn to you know, appreciate our connectedness and solidarity a little more. And I find that words like this kind of, at least for me, they help me to have great appreciation for that aspect of it.
Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with British psychologist, writer and teacher, Dr Tim Lomas, whose new book, The Happiness Dictionary, has just been published by Piacus. I asked him about the Greek word pathos and how it relates to all forms of human and artistic endeavour. Yeah, that's a really strange one too, pathos, yeah. Because, um, you know, I've been, well, to just say a little bit about my approach to the words, you know, I've been, as I did with love, I've been trying to analyse the words thematically, and, you know, group them together and see what the, these conceptual thematic groupings show us about the nature of well-being and life. And so, for example, one of the interesting uh, thematic categories that's emerged is this, uh, category of these ambivalent emotions, which are very strange because they're they're not entirely positive or pleasant, and they're a mixture of uh, sort of light and dark sensibilities. So something like pathos, it's it's a really important vital emotion. Um, but you know, there's some uncomfortable feelings within there. You know, we feel if we feel compassion for someone, we may feel sad sadness in that compassion because we're feeling some suffering on their behalf, or uh, we're kind of attuned with what they're going through. Um, so something like pathos, it's, um, it's like a really profound and important emotion. Even if it's not entirely subjectively positive or pleasant, it's a, it's a really vital and important emotion. It's part of what it means to be human, I think. I didn't know much about uh, the Japanese haiku poet Basho. And um, so I looked him up and I have to say he seems like he was an extraordinary fellow and yeah, had a lot to say about life. And yeah. you talk a bit about negative capability. It's so interesting. Can you tell me about it? Oh well, so um, in the context of Basho, I've you know I've been encountering a number of these really intriguing words relating to Japanese aesthetics and also Zen Buddhism, and many of these words would I suppose fit within that class of ambivalent feelings I was just speaking of, um, and there are some words that I find very hard to grasp. They're one of those ones that I struggle to uh, get to the bottom of and entirely understand what they mean um, and maybe that's the point you know that these are kind of perhaps elusive feelings that um, Zen Buddhism for example tries to engender within people and have people uh, experience um, so one of these well there was a few that I've uh, you know read that seem integral to uh, Japanese culture and Zen Buddhism including Wabi Sabi and uh, Monono Oware and then this uh a federal Yugen. Um and so, like you say, I, I found some. Well, you know, I found in books I've been reading about these terms and these feelings. Um, some haiku by Basho trying to articulate them, those feelings. Um, so that third one I mentioned, Yugen, seems well to kind of allude to the the profundity of existence, I suppose, and this idea that um, life is a mystery that we can't really penetrate or understand. But even so, we can kind of glimpse it vaguely, you know, as if through a glass darkly, as uh, some Paul put it, you know, this idea that uh, the meaning and mystery of life does elude our comprehension and our understanding, but we can kind of glimpse it anyway. Um, and the notion of you then seem to embody that. And it kind of seemed to me that it had parallels with Keats's idea of negative capability of, you know, not trying to just um, box everything into a uh, uh, convenient form of understanding, but just letting the mystery be and letting ourselves open up to the mystery and not trying to 
you know, reduce it to words and to concepts. Tim, you bring up the Chinese word shu, which um, I think you attribute to the great Chinese philosopher Confucius. And, you yeah. know, it, it, shu means something roughly in relation to forgiveness and mercy. And it got me thinking that when you think about what's happening all around the world and you think about trafficking of young men and women, issues in relation to migration and refugees and all of those types of issues, we need so much more shoe in life, don't we? The world would be so much of a better place if we looked from the local, national or international level at ideas related to shoe. Yeah, so I think you're right. This kind of ethos and ethic of humaneness and humanity and reciprocity, uh, you know, and kindness and, you know, that's kind of represented by shoe and, you know, and various other similar words that I've encountered. And you're right, they're so important. Um, And I think the power of these words is they can remind us of that and give us a, um, you know, they can help us meditate on the importance of these feelings and maybe even try to bring them more into our lives. You know, like I mentioned, the example is uh, meta, that form of loving kindness, and that there's meditation practices designed to help people uh, cultivate these kind of feelings. And um, from what I've read and practiced it a bit myself, it, it can be a profound practice in terms of helping us develop more kindness and compassion for, you know, people in our lives, people close to us, but also just strangers, people generally as we pass them on the street. Um, and I think that's why, for example, they're so emphasised within. Buddhism and similar traditions, that it's, you know, it's recognized how important these feelings are, but also that recognizing qualities and skills that are are just vital to the good functioning of the world and to us living our best lives. And we need to kind of help and support in, you know, trying to live up to and embodying these feelings. And, you know, I hope that projects like this and just thinking about these kind of words can play some role in that. I guess that's one of my hopes for the the book for the project. Tim, I was very interested in your um, discussion on uh, the Dutch uh, philosopher Spinoza. He was one of the kind of the guys who set the framework for the um, 18th century Enlightenment and he had a lot to say about life and a lot to say about nature. But you talk about his relevance in terms of understanding the here and now and how we understand the world we live in. And you go into a lot of detail on, um, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, natura naturans, nature as divine creative process. It's a yeah. great concept. Yeah, I found it very moving and powerful. Because what I tried to do in that chapter on spirituality is um, give a range of perspectives on uh, spirituality and spiritual experiences and then finding kind of words that capture those different perspectives. So I have, a, for example, there's a section on animism and then panentheism and then this pantheism, which is this idea of uh, nature itself, the universe and the cosmos as somehow being... A spiritual or a spiritual process. Um, and he was one of the most famous and earliest proponents of the idea and very influential. Um, kind of a controversial idea in its time, but it um, proved to be, uh, you know, a very significant moment in the development of, of thought and um, kind of inspired a lot of people and kind of continues to do so. So I've been interested, for example, um, for example, Einstein was asked if he believed in God and he said he believed in Spinoza's God. Um, and then, you know, decades later, Richard Dawkins was asked if he believed in God, and he sort of said, I think that, you know, he believed in Einstein's God, which was Spinoza's God. So this idea that even people who are avowed uh, atheists can find some significance in this, this view of nature and the cosmos that kind of traces back uh, 
Spinoza and even beyond him, but he was kind of a famous uh, proponent of that idea. And then I think it's just a, a powerful idea. So even if people don't adhere to just traditional you know, monotheistic concepts of God, they might find uh, still find some sense of spiritual significance and purpose in the universe, maybe. So I, I just found that a kind of an inspiring idea, because personally I'm not sure what I know or think, but uh, it was at least a, a perspective I found uh, like illuminating and um, just very intriguing. Yeah, it has so much to offer, really, when you think it through. Can we talk about the Giesel process and ideas around perception? Firstly, how do you understand uh, the word Giesel? Because it's something you do go into in the book. Yeah, so this, the German term uh, Gestalt, I think it relates this idea. Well, I think the term was initially used just to describe kind of the form or pattern of something. Um, but then it got adopted um, within psychology and philosophy and other disciplines to just convey the sense that um, the whole is other than the sum of its parts, and that's often understood as greater than the sum of its parts, although not necessarily. But it's this idea that um, phenomena and entities, they're, com- you know, they're composed of components, but they take on a, a character that's greater other than some of those things. So, for example, we think of a, a melody, for example. It's not just a random bunch of individual notes, but it takes on a character as a whole melody. Or a face isn't just an assemblage of like different parts, but then a face is a whole thing unto itself. So this idea that we process and understand the world by looking at patterns of uh, assembled components, and then they take on a quality of their own. And it's been a really influential idea like I say, in psychology and philosophy uh, and similar fields. And again, it's, it's, it's an idea that I can, or a concept I found, 